Uh, I was thinking uh, this week how it, it's interesting how certain uh, memories just kind of get stuck in your mind. And I was actually thinking about uh, where we lived when I was in fourth grade. And uh, I don't know what made me think of this, but in fourth grade we lived in Toledo, Ohio. And we lived on a street that backed up to a park. And so uh, we lived in a regular neighborhood, but the, my backyard was big backyard and a fence. And then there was a lake with a park behind it. And so people could come in and go to the park and different stuff. And so it was great as a kid in fourth grade. You could hop the fence and go fish in the lake and play in the park. And so I have fond memories of living there. But I have one specific memory that really stands up. It was one day my brother and I were playing in the backyard. And there were some kids in the park that were older than us. We were elementary age. My brother Jed was a year younger than me. And so we're playing in the backyard together. And... Uh, about 10 kids are in the back in the park uh, riding skateboards. And I think, I can't remember exactly. They were doing something they shouldn't be doing. Uh, maybe shooting fireworks or something. And some guy got really mad at them and started screaming at all of them. It was this big thing. And we're standing there watching the whole thing. And all of a sudden, all 10 of these kids come to our yard. And they all come over and they hop the fence into my backyard and go through our yard into our driveway and start riding skateboards around. And they say hello to us and then they leave. And my brother and I were kind of like, whoa, what just happened? Right? This is in the afternoon. A couple of hours later, the guy that was really angry about these kids figures out which house backs up to the park and he comes around and knocks on the door. And he's really mad. He's really mad. And he's accusing my brother and I of being part of whatever they were doing. And I remember as a fourth grader being upstairs in the window looking down and my dad goes to this door and the guy accuses me and my brother of being part of this. And my dad was not happy. And it was like, how dare you accuse my sons? They had nothing to do with this. And, and I vividly remember as a fourth grader, you know, in fourth grade, it's like, um, your dad can do no wrong. And if he stands up for you and he's on your side, everything's okay. And I remember watching from the window and being like, yeah, it's got us, right? <laughs> Dad's got our back. And I remember him coming in and being so upset, not at us, but how dare he said, you know, and it was like this, this feeling of uh, security, of that's going to protect us, and everything's okay. And he knows we didn't do anything, and he's got us here. And so that memory remains, even as a, a fourth grader, of thinking of just how secure you feel uh, when your dad's got your back. And so I was thinking about that week as it pertains to what we've been talking about, having a Christian worldview, being able to see the world biblically. And we're going to wrap up in this short series today. But I was thinking about that idea of how important it is to truly having a biblical worldview to see that your heavenly Father has got your back. That there is nothing outside of His control. There is nothing that we ultimately have to be worried about. And just thinking about that, that feeling as a child of feeling that way, but really to have a, a, a biblical worldview or a Christian worldview to grow up into the fullness of what God has for us, we have to see that God is sovereign. And that he is controlled. He's in control of all things. And it's vital to us seeing this, that God is the one that's in control. But not only that, that God is the one who changes hearts. That he's in control of salvation, that he's in control of the world, that nothing is outside of his rule and reign. And when we have that confidence in Christ, it leads us into the fullness of really having a biblical worldview, that we can rest in who he is and who we are in him. And so as we're finishing this short series, we've done this, this is I think the sixth week now, what we have been doing 
uh, since the beginning, since March, was we've been in Romans. And in Romans, we've gone through Romans 1 through 7. We took this kind of brief intermission to think about Christian worldview. Next week, we're going to go back to Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8. And so we're going to spend about four weeks just on chapter 8, because uh, in a lot of ways, I think Romans chapter 8 is maybe the greatest chapter in all the Bible. And so we're going to spend a lot of time in Romans chapter 8. But what I want us to do is to kind of put an end cap on worldview and thinking about having a Christian worldview. What I'm going to do is this will serve two purposes. It'll kind of put the end on this, but it'll also help be a bridge to go back into Romans. And so what I'm going to do this morning is just recap overview of Romans 1 to 7. Just real briefly, about 10 minutes, big picture of what Paul has said in Romans 1 to 7. But then there's some really important things that he says that kind of helps us with worldview, that kind of helps bring this to a close. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. And so if you want to follow along with me in Romans, what we're going to be, uh, again, in the Pew Bibles there, it's 1172 where Romans 1 starts. We're going to hit on different verses as we just quickly walk through Romans. And so I'll kind of call those out to you when we're looking at different verses. But let's just look at big picture of Romans 1 through 7. And so the book of Romans, obviously written uh, by the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to the church in Rome, and he's writing to encourage them, but he's also telling them how he wants to come and visit. And so the book begins with this greeting. just begins with this big idea. I want to come to you, and I long to be there and to encourage you. But then right off the bat, almost right away after that greeting, Paul kind of gives a summary statement. Think of the book of Romans in a lot of ways. And that's chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where he writes this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so he says right off the bat that the only way that we are saved, the only way that we have the righteousness of God is by faith in what Jesus has done. That the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And he makes that very clear right off. And then the rest of Romans is really expounding on that in a lot of ways as he fills that out. And so almost immediately then in verse 18, he jumps into why that's the case. Why it's only by grace through faith and what Christ has done. And so he says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so what he says is we suppress the truth of who we are and who God is, even though we see it in creation, our conscience bears witness, we know this, but we suppress this truth. We ignore God and the world he's created. And he says, because we know this innately, we are without excuse. It's his argument there in chapter 1. And so verse 25 of chapter 1, he'll say, Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And, and really what Paul does there is he establishes an overarching framework for predominant worldviews right there. We could really distill it down to that. Either we're worshiping the creation, what God has made, ourselves and the things around us, or we're worshiping the creator. And what Paul says is that when we worship the creation over the creator, all sorts of uh, problems ensue. That it's quickly a downward spiral. And he does that in, in chapter 1. He just shows you that. It kind of works through that. What happens when we worship the creation rather than the creator? But he also says we've all done that. And so sin has entered into the world, and we've all done this. And so then, in chapter 2 and 3, he's going to build this case that no amount of laws or rules or trying to keep them can ever make us righteous. 
Because we all fall into worshiping the creation over the creator. We've all sinned. And he'll go through and he'll make that point very clearly that no rules can make us righteous. In fact, God has given us the law to show us what he is like in his holiness, to constrain evil, but ultimately to point us to our need for a savior, that we cannot do it. And so that argument continues from chapter 1, verse 18, or yeah, 18, down to about chapter 3 and verse 20. And it culminates with what he says in 3, verse 20. And so Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so what he says is God has given us the law, and he's given us the rules, and he's told us these things to alert us to the fact that we're sinful, that we can never be perfectly righteous based on what we do. No one will be justified in God's sight by keeping the law. We cannot do it. And so he's showing us how important it is that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's the only way that it works. But then we get to 21 to 26 in Romans chapter 3. So we often refer to it as, as the Romans road. And we say that because it's, it's one of the easiest places in the Bible to take someone and go from 20 through 26 and just lay out the gospel. The very heart of what God has done for us in Jesus. And so verse 21, he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe there is no distinction. And so he says the only way that we can be righteous before God is by faith through Jesus and what he's done. There's no other way. You can't do it on your own. And then he tells you why in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so every single one of us has not measured up. So not a single one of us is righteous in and of ourselves and what we do. We can never do it. But we are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so Jesus has put forward his propitiation. He bears the wrath of God on our behalf as he takes his sin upon himself and he bears the wrath for us. Propitiation turns God from that just carries with it the idea that God is no longer angry at our sin, but he's now favorable towards us because Jesus has dealt with our sin. And so Paul summarizes there why the gospel is the power of God for salvation. That it's the good news of what Jesus has done, and that is the only way. He'd go on to say in, in, in chapter 4, or, or actually right after that, he'll go on to say that what becomes of boasting, he asked that question there. And what he says is, it's excluded. None of us can boast before God in our salvation because it's all what Jesus has done. And so when we understand the gospel, it should spark in us a profound humility and gratefulness for what God has done. That he alone has done what we could never do for ourselves. But then he'll turn the corner in chapter 4 and we'll go back and we'll say, and it's always been this way. God dealt this way with Abraham. Even Abraham, who lived almost 2,000 years before Jesus was saved by grace through faith. And he tells you why. He says, God promised 
this Savior was coming through Abraham's line. And it says Abraham, despite every evidence to the contrary, believed God. And he put his trust in God rather than himself. He worshipped the Creator rather than the creature. And as he trusted God, God counted it to him as righteousness. So Abraham was saved by grace through faith. And so chapter 4, verse 16, he says, This is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. And so the only way that we can have a right relationship, be righteous before God, is by grace through faith in what God has done. But then he says when we see that, in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, when we see that, therefore we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And he says we now have hope and we have peace and it's all because of what Jesus has done. It's all because of the power of the gospel working in and through us and what Christ has accomplished for us that we have peace and we have hope. And then he goes on to say that the, the gospel is powerful enough even though that sin has spread to all men. He lays that out in the second half of chapter 5. As one man sinned, sin entered the world. Sin spread to all men. Every single one of us has sinned and is lost in our sin. But what Jesus has come to do is so powerful and full that it can undo the work. It, can, it is uh, effective for all that would believe. And so he says it covers everything. And then chapter 6, he talks about how when we come to this saving understanding, we are a new creation. Chapter 6, verse 4, we now walk in a newness of life. Chapter 6, verse 6, he says we're no longer slaves to sin, but we've been set free from sin. Chapter 6, verse 18, we are now slaves to righteousness because of who we are in Christ. And we have a new way of operating because of what Christ has done. And so he gives us a reminder where to be bearing fruit in him. He talks about that in the beginning of chapter 7. But then as chapter 7 ends, there's kind of a, a warning there. Paul's just reminding us that there's a battle that wages in all of us between our flesh, the, the continual draw to want to make it about worshiping the create, the creature rather than the creator. That's in all of us. We want to turn back to thinking that we're the center of the world and it's all about me. And he says, we have this battle, but the Spirit is bearing witness that it's all about God and what He's done. And so that takes you through chapters 1 through 7. Now that's a very quick, big overview. But Paul says so many important things there as it pertains to worldview. As we see the world, really, you can boil down the big idea that he lays out there for, especially in those first three chapters is that we either seize autonomy and seek to walk through worshiping ourselves, and I'm the center of the world and I worship the create creation rather than the creator and I make it all about me and the way I feel and what my flesh wants, or we worship the creator. We said as we walked through Romans and we got to chapter 3, we could summarize saving faith by transferring our trust from ourselves and what we could ever do to what God has done and who he is. And so when we transfer that trust in Him, it's no longer about us. But we have that constant battle. And we see it all around us. The predominant worldviews. You can quickly kind of discern worldviews by just thinking in those terms. 
Are we seizing autonomy and making it all about me and what I want and what I think? Are we saying that truth is relative and it's all dependent on how I feel about it, which makes me the center? Or are we saying that it has been told to us by God that created all things and we worship the creation, I mean the creator over the creation? We can distill it down to that. And in so many ways, that's exactly what it comes down to. And so when we begin to battle and think through me being the sinner and what I want and how I feel about things, we're going away from a biblical worldview. Instead of seeing what God has said and who He is and resting in Him and worshiping the Creator over the creation, or we go the other way. And you see it all around us today. Truth has become relative. People have become very self-righteous in their own understanding. If you don't see it the way I see it, then you're wrong and you should be shamed. We should cancel anyone that thinks differently than the predominant culture thinks. We should attack one another. And we see it happen over and over. The sad part, and it's part of why we even stepped into this series on biblical worldview. I said at the very beginning, research kind of shows right now in America that those that claim to be a Christian, about 6% have a biblical worldview. That we're not even close. We just dismiss so many things. And what happens is, I think, and I think what Paul's saying to us in Romans, is the reason that happens is our default of our sinfulness is to make it all about us. To make it about worshiping the creation over the creator. And so what happens is that's the way our world works in the sinfulness of our world. And we see that all around us. Truth is relative, and we're fighting over all those things, and we're missing that very key. And so there's an attack on all fronts in different ways. And as Christians, we step into that type of thinking because that's the way the world works. And we begin to make excuses for it. And I go, yeah, but if we're going to get anything done, we've got to embrace this kind of thinking. And so what we do is we check out from a biblical worldview to step into the way the world thinks because we think this battle has to be fought on those grounds. And what Paul emphatically is saying, what the Bible is saying over and over is that is not true because the power of God for salvation is the gospel. And if we miss that, we will not have a biblical worldview. But when we get it, when we understand that the power of God for salvation is the gospel, God's word clearly proclaimed embodying the truth of what God looks like and being loving and gracious and kind, pointing to Jesus in all things in those ways. When we do that and when we rest in the fact that our Heavenly Father has got our back, that He is in control of all things, then we can begin to live as we're called to live. And if we don't, we're not. And this really becomes the dividing line. It becomes so important in understanding and seeing this. And so when we read through Romans 1 through 3, Paul talks about the way the world works and what it looks like. You can begin to see the allure that we slip into. The allure that places self back in the middle. I want to be right. Those people are wrong and I'm right and now it's about me. And I've lost a biblical worldview because it's not about me. It's about God and what he has done and who he is and what he's done for us in Jesus. But my sinfulness wants to make it about me. And so the allure is always there. 
the allure that power can change people. That if we just have the right people in office, or we just make the right laws, or we just make them do these things, that'll change people. That's the opposite of the gospel. But yet that's the way we think the world works, and so we embrace it. And we do it over and over. And so we put our trust in the government over clearly proclaiming the gospel. Or we make excuses for things that are contrary to the gospel. And so we need to be reminded that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. I need to be reminded that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. You need to be reminded that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And it's only there when we're resting in that truth that we're truly going to have a biblical worldview. And so I just want to share four things real briefly here as we end, just as we think about this. What Paul's saying in Romans 1 to 7, as it pertains to biblical worldview. And the first thing I would say to you is this, is that you and I, no amount of, of arguing, articulation of our worldview, the way we see it, doing it perfectly, we cannot change hardened hearts. You can't do it, and I can't do it. I heard uh, a pastor that I've listened to for years. It was a thing he did years ago. But I was listening to it this week, and he said, I am not in the hard-hearted business. And what he was saying is he was just talking about in different areas, arguing with people and what that looks like. And what he said is, I cannot change hearts. And what he was rightly saying is that God alone changes hard hearts. And so then he went on to say, so all I'm called to do is to be faithful and to proclaim clearly the gospel and embody that to others and seek to love them in that way because God alone is the one that changes hearts. And the Bible says that over and over again. If you go to Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. It says you're following the course of the world. You're following all those things. And he says, you're by nature children of wrath, you are spiritually dead. And then verse 4 says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved you, even when you were dead in your trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God does the work. He brings you from spiritual death to spiritual life, and it's by his grace that that happens. You can go to Titus 3 and Paul will say the exact same thing. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Do you hear what he says there? The only way that we're brought from death to life was according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration. And that means born again. Death to life. You're now spiritually alive. That is a work of the Holy Spirit that comes in and shows you who Jesus is and what he's done and God does this work. It says in Colossians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And so it says that over and over again. We cannot change hardened hearts. 
But then when we understand that it's only God who does that, that my salvation and your salvation was because of the grace of God through the work of the Holy Spirit showing us Jesus, he's doing it. When we understand that, and we understand the power that is in that, that is the gospel, it gives us great resources to love all people. All people. No matter how much they disagree or the divisions that are there or how ugly people can be. Because when you understand that you are saved purely and totally by God's grace, the work of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit pointing you to Jesus, you recognize that no one is beyond God's reach. If God could save me, he could save anyone. That he graciously loves me in this way. And it reminds me what Paul says there in Romans chapter 3. What becomes of boasting? It's excluded. Grace is undeserved merit. I am saved by not getting what I deserve. And when I recognize that, that Jesus loved me in that way, it gives me the resources that is the power of God working in me to now love others in the same way. Even when I don't want to. Even when it's hard. And so Paul says, in, or Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, For this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile and return. But when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus gives us an example that when people are ugly and when they attack, in his case, when they're nailing him to the cross and spitting in his face, He says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He entrusts himself to the one who judges justly. And if we recognize that we are saved by grace, then we would then turn, do the same to others. Extending the grace that we have received because we understand that we are not getting what we deserve. So therefore, we don't give other people what they deserve, but we point to the power of the gospel for salvation alone. It's only what Jesus has done. And if we're going to have a biblical worldview, it's going to be resting in that. That we want to show people what Jesus is like. We want to respond to them in the way that God responded to us. And so it gives us great resources to love all people. The third thing is it gives us hope that endures through all things. Nothing is outside of God's control. In two weeks... We're going to know who our president is for the next four years. And we're going to know who controls the Congress. And we're going to see different, the way the uh, country is going to be governed and what that looks like. And I'm certain that whoever the president is and whoever controls the Congress and whatever they do to pass laws and make these things and do whatever that we're looking at is that they do not have the power to change the hearts of men. power of God for salvation is the gospel. It's the way hearts are changed. Now, that's not to say that government's not important. It's not to say we don't want good laws and good governance. We do. That's not to say that you shouldn't vote or not care. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, as the church, as Christians that want to follow Jesus and see real change that comes, men's hearts being changed, 
that they would be turned from worshiping the creation to worshiping the creator that will only ever come by the power of the gospel. That's it. There's no other way it's going to happen. And so when we think about elections and we get so taken into it to the point that we fight and we're ugly and there's division I hear people say things like, if so-and-so wins, we're doomed. Or I hear campaigns. If so-and-so wins, America's going to be great. If so-and-so wins, the soul of the nation's going to be returned. No, it's not. The only way that is going to happen is by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. The only way that it's truly going to see change that glorifies God because the power of the gospel is the power of God. And that's the only way that it will happen or will come. And so when we understand that, no matter what happens in the next couple of weeks, there is not one square inch of this country, there's not one square inch of this world, there's not one square inch of this galaxy or this universe that Jesus is not ruling and reigning over. And it doesn't matter who the president is, that doesn't change that fact. And it doesn't change the fact that the power of God for salvation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we understand that, it gives us hope that endures through all things. And the last thing, you know, when Paul writes here, I believe what he's saying in chapter 1 and verse 16, when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I think the context there of what he's saying is that he's going to bring to completion what he started. He who began a good work is going to bring it to completion. That he's saying that you are mine and I'm going to keep you. Those who continue believing, he's going to bring to everlasting safety and joy in the presence of God because it doesn't depend on our works but what Jesus has done. And so when we see that, nothing can change that. It rests with him. We've transferred our trust from ourselves to what we could do to what God has done. And nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. No election, no government, no virus, no laws, no nothing. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. And so when we look at all the things around us, and we go back to the power of the gospel and what it says, who God is and what he's done, it is the power of God for salvation. And if we're going to have a biblical worldview that stands up and speaks the truth, and loves people, and embodies what Jesus is like, we are going to be resting in the fact that Dad has got our back. Always. And it's His power. And it's what He's doing. And we are called to be faithful to Him above all else. Him and Him alone. And so I just end here with what I read at the beginning in Romans chapter 8. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious 
good news of who you are and what you've done. That it is you and you alone that saves. That the power in which you work is through this good news of what you've done for Jesus. As we said at the very beginning of this, that the key to all is Jesus and what he's done. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I pray in a time when our country is so divided, when things are pulling us to different allegiances and places and ways of thinking, that we would hold fast to being faithful to you and you alone. That we would be reminded over and over that it is only the power of the gospel that will bring real change. That we are called to be faithful to you. That we are called to stand outside the mainstreams, but to point to you and your great love for us and what you've done. I pray that we would see that so clearly, that we would rest, and that you are sovereign over all things. We pray 